Most violent crimes do result in ghosts. <laughs> Statistical fact. Yep. Welcome everyone to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host Katie, and today we are talking about the Tylenol murders. Now, where are we going for this one, Katie? This one's mainly in the Chicago area. Uh, is that where Tylenol comes from? No, it comes from everywhere. And now, where'd you do your research on this one, Katie? There was three books for this one. I was Timers, Tylenol Man, and Timers NYC, all by Scott Bartz. Oh, he wrote three books on this subject? Yeah, apparently Johnson & Johnson fired him and like took him off the property, and he <laughs> was salty about that, so he, he wrote books about... Held a grudge, then. Yes, basically. And painted them in a poor light. No, I mean, he didn't really paint them in a poor light. He mostly just... It was a lot of information. It's just, just the that. facts. You yeah. guys can decide from there. Well, this is actually a really interesting story. I thought so. Yeah. Really got a killer headache. All right, Kitty, well, you want to go ahead and start us off? Our story begins on September 28th, 1982, with two Kane County Sheriff deputies. Around 2.30 a.m., Deputy Joseph Chavez and Deputy Al Swanson pulled into the parking lot of a local restaurant for breakfast. As they walked towards the front door, they noticed a cardboard box with the words Extra Strength Tylenol Capsules written on the side. Like in Sharpie? No, like it came from a manufacturer. Oh, okay. The boxes were the packaging used to ship them from the manufacturer and contained 12 six-packs of 50-count Tylenol bottles. The deputy noticed one of the boxes was open, and so were some of the bottles. A large pile of powder was on the ground between the boxes, and there were broken-apart capsules lying all over the ground. Deputy Chavez picked up some of the capsules pretty dumb, and looked at them, but didn't think much of it. Acetaminophen, the active ingredient in Tylenol, is commonly used for cutting drugs, so it wasn't surprising someone was emptying the capsules. Wouldn't it make sense then to maybe watch the pile of acetaminophen to wait and see who was doing this? It's right out in the middle of nowhere. Well, these are commonly used for cutting drugs. Let's go have a sandwich. I think they figured that they probably ran off when they saw two cops pull into the parking lot and they weren't coming back. I don't know what they were thinking, honestly. It's above my pay grade is all I know. Probably exactly what they were thinking. They went inside and ordered breakfast, but as they ate, Chavez began getting a terrible headache and noticed a large rash developing on his arm. Apparently still not concerned, they finished eating and walked back outside. This time, Deputy Swanson inspected the powder, picking some up and rubbing it between his fingers. That's a dumber thing to do. Still thinking it was nothing, they both got into their cars and drove away to continue their shifts. Not long after pulling out of the parking lot, Swanson had to pull over when he became extremely sick, throwing up a headache and dizziness. They didn't know it at the time, but both officers were experiencing symptoms of cyanide poisoning which absorbed through their skin when they touched the Tylenol capsules and powder in the restaurant parking lot. This is why, like, crime TV shows are kind of bullshit if cops, like, go in and they, like, taste the cocaine with their gums or, you know, snort a little bit of it to find out if it's real or they just even touch (laughs) random powders that they find. Like, that's the most bullshit cop, like, Hollywood thing I've ever heard of. I think it was more common back in the day, but now that fentanyl is a thing and it will kill you if you touch it... I think that should be in COP 101. Hey, you find mysterious powder, even if you think you know what it is, just maybe just don't touch it. But see, the thing is, is that, that at that point, you're an expert on powder. So at least 90% of the time, you're like, this is baking soda. Watch this. <laughs> I don't think that's true either. They're powder experts, Roar. 
Okay. What kind of cop shows are you watching where they snort it? Whenever they cut it open with a knife and like they touch put it, it on to their, their tongue, or they put it on their gums, or they like bring it up to the light and they like give it a little touch to their nose. I mean, if it's, it's cocaine, cocaine, you should be able to smell it. Well, you'd think it has, like, but there are powders out there that don't have a stank to them. On September 29th, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up with a sore throat and cough and was told to stay home from school. Her father, Dennis, went to the bathroom and grabbed her some extra-strength Tylenol that Mary's mother, Deanna, had purchased the day before. After giving Mary the Tylenol, her father went back to bed and heard as Mary went into the bathroom, closed the door, then dropped something. Dennis went to check on her, and when he opened the bathroom door, he found Mary lying on the bathroom floor, unresponsive. By the time the ambulance arrived, she was in full cardiac arrest. She was pronounced dead at 10 a.m. after arriving at the hospital. How long was it from the time that she was given the Tylenol till 10 a.m. when she died? When she, I mean, she was dead probably 30 seconds to a minute after she ingested the Tylenol, but she wasn't pronounced deceased. They continued to basically do CPR until she got to the hospital. Oh, so it kills you pretty quick? Pretty much immediately. Well, haven't you ever seen those films where Nazis pull out their fake tooth and crunch down? It's cyanide capsules. Oh. Yeah. That is a good reference point. No, it kills... If you take enough of it, it kills you immediately, especially if you ingest it and not how just much, touch it. How much is enough of it? A Tylenol capsule worth? Yeah. Probably less than that. A tooth's amount? This Hail is Hydra. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> this... That's why when you have a sore throat, you should take ibuprofen. What's Tylenol even good for? The same thing. It's an NSAID, just like ibuprofen. In Arlington Heights, not far from Mary Kellerman's home, Adam Janice stopped at a local Jewel-Osco grocery store for some groceries and extra-strength Tylenol. After he got home, he took two of the capsules, then went to lay down, telling his wife Teresa he didn't feel well. A few minutes later, she went in to check on him and found him convulsing and unresponsive. Adam was still alive when paramedics arrived, but they were unable to save him, and he was pronounced dead at 3.15. Around the same time Adam was arriving at the hospital, Lynn Rayner was purchasing a bottle of Tylenol from a Frank's Finer Foods in Winfield, 25 miles from Arlington Heights. Lynn had just been released from the hospital the day before after giving birth to her son five days earlier. When she arrived home from the store, she dug through the bag of items given to her by the hospital and took out the extra-strength Tylenol capsule she'd been prescribed. She took two, then put the rest into the bottle of the regular-strength Tylenol she'd just purchased. Suddenly feeling sick, she told her mother she was going to lay down. On her way to the bathroom, she felt dizzy and sat down at the kitchen table. Her husband arrived home and walked in the door to his mother-in-law telling him to call an ambulance as and his wife dying. As he picked up the phone, Lynn fell off the chair and began convulsing on the floor. She was rushed to the hospital, but was not pronounced dead until later. So there's no chance that it was her regular strength Tylenol where she got the poison from? No, she didn't take any of it. As Lynn was arriving at the hospital, Mary McFarland was at work in Lombard, searching through her purse for her extra strength Tylenol. She took two, then suddenly became very sick. She walked to the table where her coworkers were sitting, then told them she didn't feel good, then collapsed into the table. An ambulance was called, and she was rushed to the hospital, but like Lynn, she was not pronounced dead immediately. Mary was taken off life support at 3 a.m. and Lynn at 9 a.m. on September 30th. At this point, because all four victims had died in different towns, their deaths were not connected. It wasn't until late Wednesday afternoon that paramedics began to question what was happening. 
So I guess like we already talked about, it kills you pretty quick. It seems like even if you get the immediate medical attention, it doesn't matter. Just like they put them on life support and they lasted a little longer, but they still died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it is pretty much immediate brain death. Well, yeah, it, it, uh, the way cyanide kills you, I guess, is that it uh, takes all the oxygen out of your It keeps your blood from producing oxygen, so your main organs that uh, use oxygen, such as your brain as a heart, sort of go into failure first. So people have seizures because they're trying to get their brain to restart, and they can't, and so their heart's beating real fast trying to get enough oxygen, and it slowly gives up too. So you can't really get your body to kickstart oxygen production in your cells. Adam Janice's brother, Stanley, and Stanley's wife, Teresa, had arrived back at Adam's home after leaving the hospital. Teresa is Adam's wife. Yes, there's two Teresas. What? Stanley's wife, Teresa. They both married a Teresa? Yes, it's possible for two people to have the same name. And they're spelled differently as well, so. Well, you're right. I didn't notice the spelling. But I think it's important, since our listeners can't see the spelling. Because they'd both been crying, they grabbed the bottle of extra-strength Tylenol Adam had left sitting on the counter before he died. Stanley and Teresa both took two capsules, and then Stanley began walking outside to smoke a cigarette when he fell to the floor and began convulsing. Teresa called an ambulance, and the same crew who had taken Adam to the hospital earlier arrived and began working on Stanley. As they worked, Teresa also collapsed and began convulsing. The doctor that had worked on Adam earlier was now working on Stanley and Teresa. Trying to figure out what had happened, he called the local poison control center, who told him their symptoms sounded like cyanide poisoning. Did Stanley and Teresa with an H survive? No. A public health nurse who worked at the hospital where Adam, Stanley, and Teresa were taken was called and told something strange was going on. She took it upon herself to go to the Janus home with a police escort. The only thing the three had consumed before dying was coffee, peaches, and extra-strength Tylenol. Helen was the first one to realize that the Janices had been poisoned by the Tylenol. After hearing what had happened at the Janices, an Arlington Heights police officer got in contact with the Janices' doctor and explained what had happened to Mary Kellerman that morning. Her Tylenol bottle was brought to the hospital and kept with the bottle that had killed the Janices. In Chicago, Paula Prince had just arrived back in town and stopped at a local Walgreens late Wednesday. She purchased a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol, went home, took two capsules, and died. Because she lived alone and had Thursday off work, no one discovered her until she missed work on Friday. Around 3 a.m., the two bottles of extra-strength Tylenol were sent to a lab to be tested for cyanide after blood tests proved that it had killed Mary Kellerman and the Janices. The tech doing the test knew as soon as the bottles were opened that they did indeed contain cyanide as it has a strong smell of bitter almonds, which apparently only about 40% of the population can actually smell. So that's the thing. Isn't bitter a, like a taste thing, not a smell thing? No, you can smell something bitter. This is caused by a chemical reaction between the cyanide and moisture, and it occurs pretty rapidly. The reaction also caused the capsules the Tylenol is contained in to swell and begin to deteriorate which will be an important part of the investigation. Tylenol is produced by Johnson & Johnson, a major corporation in America that produces things like OTC drugs, baby powder, band-aids, and much more. Like tearless shampoo, right? Yes, that too. Their work to save their company and keep the public's trust began as soon as they got wind of the potential poisonings using their products. Their first call was, oddly enough, not to recall extra-strength Tylenol anywhere, including Chicago. 
The stores where the poison capsules were bought took initiative and began having employees pull either all extra-strength Tylenol or any that came from the lot number that was the same on the Kellerman and Janus bottles. Their next move came September 30th when Illinois Attorney General Tyrone Fawner was appointed head of the Tylenol Task Force. He told all Chicago-area residents to take any Tylenol capsules they had and flush them down the toilet. Some may argue that Fawner did this out of pure ignorance in an attempt to protect the public, but looking at how much evidence he ordered the public to destroy, he's slightly culpable for the Tylenol killer never being caught. Because hardly any Tylenol was handed over to the police to be tested, no one knew exactly how many bottles had been poisoned. With that information, it would have been easier to determine if the poisonings occurred at the point of the manufacturer or in retail stores. Johnson & Johnson also lied to the public right off the bat, telling them that cyanide is not used in the manufacture of Tylenol, but was forced to retract the statement and admit that it is used during manufacture for quality control testing. So, if one happened to work at McNeil, who manufactured Tylenol, they had both access to cyanide and a relatively easy way to put it into empty Tylenol capsules. Sounds to me like old J&J might have slipped uh, Fauna a little incentive. Honestly, I probably would have said the same thing in 1982. Like, oh, people are taking Tylenol and dying? Hey, don't take Tylenol. Get rid of it. <laughs> Throw out your Tylenol. Yeah. yeah, I think it was more of an ignorance thing and, like, please don't take it anymore to save lives, but... I think that if they if it was from inside the factory, like... Well, I guess because it's in the Tylenol factory, obviously, right? The cyanide. I was going to say, there's a lot of other products probably that are, like, just as easy or easier to fill with like baby powder and just fill fill a whole box of cyanide put a baby powder sticker on it we're not going to kill as many people though yeah i don't think that was the point yeah i think the odds are probably higher if you have a whole family taking tylenol and the whole family possibly getting poisoned than someone having triplets so was this uh, a thought out attack do you think someone was like hey how can i get away with killing a large amount of people or what would be the point of someone killing like this? In my opinion, I think this was mainly curiosity. And what happens if I put cyanide and Tylenol capsules and put them out to the public? Basically, I don't think it was intentionally planned with like a count in mind, basically. I don't think they set out to kill X amount of people. I think they just wanted to see if they... Could get away with could it. Could kill people and could get away with it. Okay. And this was way back before, like, security cameras and manufacturing plants and anything where probably even not even security codes really to get into places, like, to get into the cyanide. I think that technology was around in the 80s. Yeah, but... Locks? They didn't have biometrics. I don't think biometrics would have stopped this either way. It's possible that they brought the cyanide to the factory themselves. Too. It's not like they had to use the cyanide at the factory. They could have literally just pulled it out of their pocket. On Thursday, police returned to Lynn Rayner's home to see if her unexplained death had also been caused by cyanide poisoning. They looked in the bottle of regular strength Tylenol Lynn had purchased, noticed the six capsules of extra strength mixed in. When they were tested, four of them were filled with cyanide. Johnson & Johnson would try to say that Lynn purchased her regular strength Tylenol with the poison extra strength already inside and didn't question it, but this isn't true. The capsules that she'd added to the regular strength bottle had come from the closed pharmacy at the hospital, 
adding even more strength to the theory that the poisonings had occurred during manufacture. When you consider Lynn's story with all the other evidence, it's impossible that someone had gone into retail stores and put the poison capsules into the bottles. If this was the case, Lynn Rayner would still be alive. The Tylenol that killed her had to have arrived at the hospital already poisoned before she was given the two-day prescription. That afternoon, Johnson & Johnson ordered sales reps to go to retail stores and hospitals and ensure that they were not selling or prescribing any extra-strength Tylenol. Any that they found was to be destroyed immediately. With this, they destroyed any evidence that the Tylenol given to Lynn at the hospital was poisoned and backed their story that this had to have happened in retail stores. Johnson & Johnson likely wasn't as phased by extra-strength Tylenol being in Lynn's regular-strength bottle because it was surprisingly common for them to do during manufacture. In the three years leading up to the murders, over 300 complaints had been filed against McNeil. They included complaints that pills were missing from bottles, different pills than the package said were in bottles, and even things like fingernails were found inside the bottles. That's disgusting. Fingernails is a bit much, but I feel like if you get, like, extra strength or the price of regular strength, it's just, like, bonus, right? No, I would be suspicious as fuck. Yeah, straight up. Like, if I were going to get some anti-diarrheal medicine that Johnson Johnson makes, and I open up the blister pack, and in there's a fucking bunch of Advil, I'd be pretty upset. Yeah. <laughs> what if it was uh, the stuff that makes you poop instead? And I'd Laxative? be even more upset, because I'd be super dehydrated and probably <laughs> blow a hole in the side of my intestines and bleed out and die. And then you could sue Johnson & Johnson, a nope, family I'd be company. Dead. Thursday morning also brought the news that Mary McFarland had also died by cyanide poisoning. When her bottles were checked, the lot number of the poison bottle was different than that of Mary Kellerman and the Janice's bottle. Now Johnson & Johnson was forced to recall yet another lot number and thousands more bottles of Tylenol. Still, they did not recall all Tylenol products nationwide. On the evening of October 1st, Paula Prince's body was discovered by her sister. By now, Johnson & Johnson was claiming that the corrosive cyanide would have deteriorated through the capsules in a few days, proving that the tampering had to happen at a retail level. Are they, like, almost just, like, spitballing? Like, trying to just throw in a bunch of theories out and hoping one of them sticks when it comes down to it? I'm pretty sure they're just trying to muddy the waters with the blame game. Because, ultimately, they are culpable, and they know it. Even... If they got put, if they got put in a retail stores, they become less responsible and don't have to do any internal investigations or anything because it's outside of their control. But when it becomes an inside thing, the America is going to expect them to have a response for that. So here they can just push the blame off real fucking easy. And they had tests too that when they opened all of the bottles that they had collected so far that had killed people, they were deteriorating, and so they kind of took that and just assumed that, well, they bought it this day and it had to have been poisoned that day too, so two days, when in reality it's much longer. Plus, they probably weren't really taking into account because they said that, or you guys are saying that uh, the smell is caused by uh, reaction with moisture, so if some of those pills came in contact with moisture, there's probably a chance that they have a faster reaction. Yeah. So that probably is the only reason that they even, something like that. It's really any moisture, like moisture in the air will start the reaction as as soon as it really hits any sort of surface. So they did start as soon as the cyanide was put into the capsules, but it just didn't 
happen as quickly as they assumed it did. Well, that's what I'm saying. If they had some of their bottles that they're looking at and they're already deteriorated, it's probably just because some of them got like more humid area or something stored differently. Later in the day, while inspecting some of the bottles taken from retail stores, two more bottles with poison capsules were found in an Osco drugstore. Johnson & Johnson announced later that night that it had only been one bottle, once again lying to the public. Two more would be found three weeks later, bringing the true total of tampered bottles to 12. In an attempt to figure out suspects, famous FBI profiler John Douglas was brought in to create a psychological profile of the madman that had been going store-to-store and poisoning Tylenol capsules. He said the man would have had a long history of failures, would gravitate towards positions of authority, but have trouble holding a job, would have a psychiatric record and have a history of depression, and would have experienced some type of stressful event before the poisonings. This profile did absolutely nothing for investigators, as it probably could describe half of Chicago residents. Officials took it and ran, though, using it to further the in-store tampering theory. They were able to map out the likely route their perp drove to get to each store and guess that he'd put the cyanide capsules in the Tylenol bottles on September 28th. Was anyone buying uh, the ridiculous story that they're trying to sell here? Because it literally seems like you could tell the cops anything, and if it fit what they wanted, like even slightly, it, basically if it, if it wasn't uh, saying that it was done at the manufacturing level, the cops would have ran with it. I mean, yeah, every, pretty much the entire public bought the story because this was the only one they were getting at the time. They didn't know about anything that was going on in the manufacturing plants and that Lynn's cyanide capsules came from the hospital like none of this was known to anyone really so the most likely theory was that someone put cyanide in the bottles of tylenol in the store behind closed doors though johnson and johnson and their manufacturing partner mcneil were in close contact with zon drug who distributed the tylenol to both retail stores and the hospital lynn rayner's poison tylenol had come from because news had come out about deputies Chavez and Swanson finding the box Tylenol and cyanide powder in a restaurant parking lot, McNeil had a reason to believe that the tampered product had at minimum passed through Zondrug's warehouse. They distributed Tylenol to retail stores in the exact packaging Chavez and Swanson had found in the parking lot, boxed in cases of 72 50-count bottles. This, once again, points to the poisonings occurring at the manufacturing plant and Johnson & Johnson knowing it but doing almost nothing. They did initiate a nationwide recall on October 5th. About time. What did that sit? It took them a week, basically? Pretty close, yeah. The next day, a letter arrived at Johnson & Johnson with Tylenol written on the front. Inside, the letter read, If you want the killing to stop, then wire $1 million to number 8449597 at Continental... Illinois Bank in Chicago. I think the envelope literally just said Johnson & Johnson Tylenol. I think it just said Tylenol. Oh. It was like hand-delivered, basically. Oh, okay. The account belonged to Frederick McKay, who'd closed it five months earlier. When he was questioned, it was obvious he had not written the extortion letter, but a disgruntled ex-employee, James Lewis, had. Lewis's wife had worked at one of McKay's businesses that had gone bankrupt due to McKay's shady practices. When he closed the doors, he didn't bother paying anyone their last paychecks. Shady McKay. <laughs> Lewis attempted to sue, but because McKay didn't have any money to pay, they were SOL. 
Lewis thought that writing the extortion letter would cause police to investigate McKayhee and uncover his quote-unquote fraudulent business dealings. From the moment the extortion letter arrived, Lewis became the Tylenol Task Force's best and most pursued suspect. He was living in New York City at the time he wrote the letter and during the poisonings, so there's no possible way he's the Tylenol killer. But he does have an interesting past. In 1978, Lewis and his wife, Leanne, lived next to a man named Raymond West in Kansas City, Missouri. On July 23, 1978, West disappeared. His good friend Charles attempted to go to West's home, but no one was there. When police asked who might know where he was, James Lewis's name was brought up. Lewis did know. He claimed that West went to the Ozarks with a girlfriend for four days. Charles knew West well, and knew that West definitely didn't have a girlfriend and never went out of town without telling anyone. Can you imagine? He's just like, what? No, he does not have a girlfriend. He was more than likely gay, so that's why he didn't have a girlfriend. Oh, so it's not because he was just like a super nerd. Things went quiet for three weeks until Charles went back to West's house to take another look around. This time, when he entered, an overwhelming smell was permeating the entire home. In the bedroom, there was dried blood on the floor. A bag in the basement contained West's toupee and glasses, along with bloody sheets. When police went in the bedroom and looked up, there was a large stain soaking through the ceiling. West's body was in the attic above his bedroom, lying face down, his legs cut off at the hip and wrapped in sheets. James Lewis was immediately arrested and questioned, where he admitted he tried cashing a $5,000 check signed by West the day he went missing. Without any evidence, Lewis was released, but was indicted by a grand jury after West's checkbook was found in Lewis's car. Right before the trial was to begin, though, the judge dismissed all charges on lack of evidence. The bullet had not been in the house the day West went missing, and his friend Charles had changed the locks only a few days after, which would have prevented anyone from getting in if they'd had a key. The entire case was a mess, and to this day is unsolved. That's pretty brutal. That's a weird thing to have lived next to. I think Charles did it. Yeah. He's the only one that had a key. Was Charles his boyfriend? Oh. No, I don't think so. Hmm. But what? he, like the day after West went missing, Charles went and changed the locks because he figured that Lewis had gone into the house and taken his money. And so, and if that way, if West came back, he would have to go to Charles and be like, hey, what the fuck? Why can't I get in my house? Makes sense. Well, and then no blood. Until like three weeks later. That's weird. That is weird. How do you know Charles wasn't just trying to get a leg up on the situation by getting the locks changed? Because there was no blood in the house. The day that West went missing, three weeks later there was, and the only one with a key was Charles. Oh, that is weird. Charles probably did it. Must have been Charles. I feel like it had to have been. Yeah, they were next to his body. I think they had, I think he had to chop his legs off to get him into the attic. Because he used, like, a pulley system, oh. and he was probably too heavy. A full-grown man trying to lift him into an attic. It's not easy, I imagine. I have no experience. In 1981, Lewis was once again being investigated, this time for credit card fraud. Right before a search warrant was to be served, Lewis and his wife packed up their belongings, chose aliases, and moved to Chicago. It was there they had their trouble with McKayhee, and then moved to New York City in early September 1982. They were still there, living under aliases, when James wrote the extortion letter. It took the FBI ten weeks to find James and Leanne Lewis, who were not really trying to hide. Lewis was sentenced to ten years for the attempted extortion in 1983. 
On October 7th, while investigators were still trying to find the writer of the extortion letter, they learned about two cyanide poisoning deaths that occurred in Wyoming and Pennsylvania before September. William Pascal died on April 3, 1982, from a cyanide-laced extra-strength Tylenol capsule. In Bighorn, Wyoming, Jay Mitchell had taken extra-strength Tylenol on July 26 and not woken up in the morning. When toxicology reports came back from Mitchell, the level of cyanide exactly matched the levels in the Tylenol killer's victims. The director of toxicology at the University of Utah, Dr. Brian Finkel, said it was highly unlikely that Mitchell and the Chicago victims would have ingested the same amount of cyanide but been poisoned by two different people. So this was months beforehand when all these, like, months before all the other uh, people died on September 29th. Uh, wouldn't there have been, like, a bunch more bottles, theoretically, in the same time period or, or area? Unless it had been a test. That's what I'm thinking. He was testing the waters and didn't yes. hear about anything that had happened, so he said fuck it and threw a bunch out there and saw what happened. Okay. Well, that's a pretty good theory, I think. It's also possible that there was just unexplained deaths so were not tested, because you don't test for cyanide in a normal toxicology report. You test for drugs, and that's about it. Johnson & Johnson was quick to deny Mitchell and Pascal's death were connected to the Chicago murders. In January of 1983, the Cook County coroner announced that they'd found three other unexplained deaths in Cook County, Illinois, had been due to cyanide poisoning. The official death count remained seven, despite Johnson & Johnson being shown plenty of evidence that it was higher. On October 9th, testing also proved that the cyanide could sit in the capsules without showing any signs of deterioration for much longer than the 48 hours Johnson & Johnson was trying to push. After 10 days, the test capsule still looked normal, proving once again the poisoning likely happened at the manufacturer. As Johnson & Johnson continued to deny anything that may point to them being responsible, police continued their work of pointing fingers at people who definitely could not have been responsible for the murders. Besides James Lewis, their next best suspects were Lynn Rayner's family, specifically her husband Ed and father Howard Fearon. Police came to the conclusion that Ed and Howard worked together to put a poison bottle of Tylenol in the store where they knew Lynn was going to shop, and placed more poison bottles around the Chicago area to make it look like Lynn was not targeted specifically. Of course, when you think logically about this, it's impossible. Lynn's poison Tylenol had come from the hospital pharmacy, and she herself had added the pills into the bottle of regular strength Tylenol she had purchased. It's also pretty unlikely that Ed and Howard would have been able to sneak into the store and put the bottle on the shelf, knowing it was the exact one Lynn would grab out of the dozens of others sitting there. These cops kind of seem to be chasing their tails so far, like going after these like far-fetched ideas, and I'm not even sure what the alternative would have been since there wasn't a whole lot of leads, but it just doesn't seem like this particular lead is very uh, efficient detective work. They were just trying to catch someone to make everyone... Calm down. Yeah. yeah. Calm, calm the people. Better. Look, we did our job. And this was... Kind of some of the police, but it was mainly the FBI. Hmm. And back in the 80s, they were not known for their super good detective work. What? All those 80s cop shows weren't right? No, the feds were kind of super shady. Except for Matlock. Maybe still are. Matlock's not a fed. Right before Ed and Howard were going to be arrested, another suspect came out of the blue. Roger Arnold walked into a bar on the evening of October 9th carrying a plastic bag full of white powder. He told the barkeeper it was cyanide, then started talking about killing people with it. 
I thought he was just coming in with trying to like set up a joke. Like, walks into a bar with a bag of white powder. Yeah, I thought that when I was writing this, but no, <laughs> he literally did this. The bar's owner called police and told them this wasn't the first time Arnold had made comments like this, and he was known to keep test tubes, guns, and cyanide in his house. What do you do with test tubes? Put cyanide in them, probably. Oh, okay. And add other stuff? I don't know. <laughs> Kaboom? Maybe. Does cyanide explode? I don't think so. Arnold was arrested for a previous aggravated assault charge and held without bail so he could be questioned. He did admit to purchasing and keeping cyanide in his home, but said he disposed of it in April. When police conducted a search, they found two one-way tickets to Thailand, a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook, and a copy of the poor man's James Bond, written by a seriously right-wing survivalist and former Minuteman. The one-way tickets to Thailand, like, he just had those chilling? Can you have tickets without dates on them? I mean, they had dates. He was gonna go on vacation. Oh, okay. I thought it was like his get-out bag. Like, you know how in the movies they have their bag of cash and guns? No, if he you was... got tickets in there that you bought two years ago, they're probably not good anymore. No, he was planning on going. He said he goes every year. And the poor man's James Bond? It's a book. That sounds like a good book. I don't think it is. I think it's kind of like the Turner Diaries. The most interesting find was a plastic bag full of white powder and instructions for encapsulating cyanide. It turned out to just be carbonate, but the police were now hearing from multiple bar owners in the Chicago area that Arnold had come in and discussed killing people with cyanide. With no hard evidence, Arnold had to be released, but police surveilled him for weeks and somehow connected him to Lynn Rayner's father, Howard Fearon, making them both suspects. Eventually, Howard passed a polygraph and was dropped as a suspect. So we don't know exactly how the two were connected? The police said that they were drinking buddies, and that's how they knew each other. Well, that's the strongest bond that you can get, I think. On October 25th, two more bottles of poisoned extra-strength Tylenol were recovered, bringing the totals to nine. Inside the box of the eighth bottle was a fingerprint, which the woman who turned the bottle over claimed belonged to her, although it had been proven that the cyanide could sit in the capsules for longer than two days before showing signs of deterioration. This bottle had been sitting for 26 days, with the cyanide capsules inside of it. By then, the capsules should have been pretty close to gone, and just loose cyanide would have been in the bottle. When the pills were inspected, they were all intact and showed no sign of corrosion. Cyanide was also mixed with acetaminophen, something all the other capsules weren't. This bottle was obviously not the work of the Tylenol murderer, and not long later it was revealed why the hoax bottle was handed over. The woman who had turned it in claimed she purchased it from the same store Lynn Rayner had purchased her bottle. She eventually came forward and said that she had lied and actually purchased it at another store. The eighth bottle and story behind it were created to further prove that Ed Rayner and Howard Fearon were responsible for Lynn's murder and had made the other bottles to cover it up. Once the woman told police where she'd actually gotten the bottle, police had no evidence against Ed and Howard and were forced to officially drop them as suspects. Everything went quiet for a while, and the families of the victims sued Johnson & Johnson for their tampered products. Originally, they planned to take it to trial, but literal moments before the court was called to session, Johnson & Johnson decided to settle. The only reason they did so was because the judge had denied to seal any evidence brought before the jury, which would have made it public information. Johnson & Johnson were obviously worried about something in those documents casting them in a bad light. Each family got between $200,000 and $990,000, with 40% going to their lawyers. The lawsuit originally was estimated to cost Johnson & Johnson around $50 million, but it ended up only costing them $3.5 million. 
How'd they even get away with that? Because they settled. After the families were paid, the case went cold and the story was forgotten. Johnson & Johnson regained their stock prices and actually increased their sales. Public trusted them and felt they handled the crisis well. Johnson & Johnson introduced tamper-resistant packaging, which consisted of sealed foil under the lid, a heat trunk plastic band around the neck of the bottle, and glue on the box's flaps that forced the opener to rip the box when opening it. So this is why I have to deal with childproof bottles. Not childproof, but when they're tamper-resistant, yeah, like the foil and everything and the plastic. Oh, so the childproof is probably from a whole nother podcast episode that we're going to do, right? Johnson & Johnson felt their new packaging would prevent anything like the Tylenol murders from ever happening again. Unfortunately, they were wrong. In New York City, on the evening of February 7th, 1986, Diane Ellsroth asked her boyfriend Michael for some aspirin. He looked around and found an unopened bottle of extra-strength Tylenol in the pantry, opened it, and handed Diane two capsules. She took them and went to bed. When she didn't come down for breakfast or lunch the next day, Michael and his parents, who were staying with him and Diane, went to check on her. She was dead. When police were told she had taken Tylenol right before her death, the remaining capsules were tested and three of the 21 contained cyanide. This time, it wasn't pure cyanide like the 1982 murders had been, but rather a mixture of 60% cyanide and 40% inert materials like iron and silver. A spokesperson for the FDA came forward almost immediately and claimed that it was highly unlikely the tampering had occurred at the manufacturing plant. Because they sold so much of the product, they would have known sooner if any of the other bottles had also contained cyanide. What they didn't take into account was the fact that it's rare cyanide is tested for during autopsies unless asked for, and any unexplained deaths of elderly persons wouldn't have been questioned. Based on these two things alone, we can probably ins- we can probably safely assume there were more deaths than just Diane from poison Tylenol capsules. Six days later, they were proven wrong when a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol tested by the FDA contained cyanide capsules. When the package was checked for any signs of tampering, there were absolutely none. The foil seal, plastic neckband, and box were all in the same condition they would have been when they left the factory. Then, a third bottle tested positive, but showed no signs of tampering. The FBI got involved and ran a microscopic test of the foil seal on the poison bottles to see if it had, in fact, been tampered with. Their test proved it hadn't, meaning the poison capsules had to have been placed in the bottles during manufacture before they were sealed. Johnson & Johnson still somehow managed to save themselves by announcing they were going to stop selling capsules altogether. Their products from 1986 and on would only come in tablet or caplet form, which could not be taken apart and refilled with anything else. This was something that should have been done in 1982 after seven or more people died from taking poison capsules, but like Johnson & Johnson's spokesperson said, hindsight is 20-20. That's how they brushed it off? Mm-hmm. Things went quiet again, and the 1986 murder wasn't discussed until 16 years later when Johnson & Johnson Public Relations Vice President announced they'd finally figured out how the 1986 bottles were tampered with. Apparently, new testing showed that the bottom plastic of the bottle had been cut out, the poison capsules placed inside, and the plastic replaced and made to look like new again. They didn't mention how the tamperer was able to open and close the tamper-resistant box, but apparently that didn't matter. They once again avoided any responsibility for the deaths that were likely caused during the manufacture of their product. The Tylenol killer, or killers, escaped scot-free. They also likely escaped some pretty serious tax evasion charges. 
1986 poisonings proved that McNeil was using one of their Puerto Rico plants to produce over-the-counter drugs when it was only supposed to be producing prescription drugs like Tylenol-3. The prescription plant did not have to pay taxes on any products produced there, but the OTC plant did. Johnson & Johnson and McNeil snuck around this catch and produced bulk Tylenol powder at the prescription plant, then set it to be bottled elsewhere, untaxed. So that would leave a lot of area probably for someone to tamper with it, right? Between getting made in one place and shipped to another place. Yeah, I mean, all of it from 82 and 86 moved around the country significantly. So it talked about it more in the book, like where each bottle moved to, but this would have been like three weeks worth of episodes if I would have covered everything he did. If we traced every bottle. Exactly, yeah. So I kind of smashed it all down into easy-to-consume information. The 1982 and 1986 poisonings proved Johnson & Johnson to be a rather shady corporate entity who were extremely good at saving their asses and lying to the public and possibly letting a murderer walk free. So what do we have for theories here? What do you think the actual poisoner did in this situation? Do you think he actually poisoned it from the plant, or do you think he was a lone wolf type of guy? It would have been impossible for the 1986 murders to have happened anywhere but during manufacture. He had Those pills had to be full of cyanide before they were sealed. There's no other way. This whole taking the plastic off the bottom of the bottle and replacing it is bullshit. So it definitely, if they're two different people, it definitely was at the manufacturing plant in 86, 82, I think the same thing. I think this was likely an employee who either took cyanide from there and no one noticed or brought it himself, and he was one of the people in charge of filling the capsules. So it was kind of a random, if you get it, you get it, and that's why some bottles had five and some had two, and it was kind of a random shot in the dark. Interesting. I wonder what the actual manufacturer process looks for like that. For that, you think it's just to fill the bottle, fill the capsule, seal it, and then just send it down the line? Basically, yeah. I think they use kind of like a, they drop half of the capsule in, and they fill it, and then they pop the top on, and they stamp it with a 500. Mm. So you know it's an extra strength. And that's another reason some of them they could tell were from different people tampering with him, because the Tylenol killer... His 500s were lined up perfectly, not like he had taken them apart and refilled them. They had been stamped with the 500 after they had been filled. Oh, that's crazy. So it definitely happened at some point in the manufacturer by someone who was either curious or angry. Or both. Curiously angry. That's possible, too. <coughs> so is that going to do it for this week's episode, Katie? Mm-hmm, that's it. All right, guys. Well, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full list of episodes, send us any ideas for episodes you might want to hear, or to get your free sticker from our merch store by entering the code BINGOBANGO at checkout. Just do that, we'll ship it out to you 100% for free. So we hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and maybe this week, just sniff your Tylenol before you take it, just in case, or buy off-brand Tylenol. Ooh, I didn't even think of that. 
Nobody sells capsules anymore, so you're good. The cheapies are the people who didn't get affected by this. You're probably right. All right, guys. See Talk ya. to you next week. Adios, motherfuckers! Just imagine being murdered by OJ as in the background it just plays. There's some holes in no, this no, no. house. There's a juice in this house. <laughs> There's a juice in this house.